Oh, I'm aware there's a range of uh, experience of people uh, gathered together here uh, for this retreat time. So um, I'm trying to present things so that it's uh, accessible, meaningful for everyone. But uh, uh, I feel it's uh, a good thing to introduce this process of vipassana meditation uh, early on, as this is uh, one of the key methods for uh, developing uh, insight, uh, understanding of self-view, how it operates, and how it can be let go of. Because even if there's just uh, a moment of, say, we, uh, uh, if we establish that quality of attention in the present, and then, say, we, we hear a sound outside the hall, and then uh, the first reaction is, oh, I'm hearing the sound of the birds, or the, the cat, or the... Uh, that there's someone sneezing, I hear that, and then the, there's a, a, a catching, a noticing of that uh, that judgment, that that reaction. Think, well, no, there's there's hearing, and is that uh, there's hearing of a sound? Is that uh, is that something that is changing? Yes, uh, is it uh, is it something that is. Uh, it's, is, it, is there a me here that knows that sound? Is it, it this I that is doing the hearing? Uh, or is there just hearing? And in that investigating, even if it's just for a moment, there can, there's the realization, oh, it's just hearing. I say I hear because that's the convention of language and the way that uh, we are conditioned to, to think and speak. But actually... Actually, it's just hearing of a sound. There isn't really uh, a, a definable, tangible me that's the, the one who's hearing, uh, or a feeling in the body. That, oh yes, ow, this is painful. This, my leg is aching. And then, well yes, there's the experience of aching. That's an uncomfortable feeling. And I say, I am, I am in pain, my leg hurts. But if that... Uh, uh, that feeling is clarified if that's looked at, that's explored is it changing? Uh, yes, is it dukkha? Yes <laughs> it is definitely dukkha it's uncomfortable uh, and is it uh, is it who and what I am? is it atta? is that, uh, is that, that me or mine? So what is it here that owns that feeling? what's, what's the me that is the owner of that, that sensation? Oh, is the I say I feel my leg. I, I feel that sensation. What's that I look like? Where is it? What qualities is it? Does it have? And not to get lost in more proliferation, but just noticing that when that is questioned or explored in that way, there's a quality of, of insight and intuition that says, oh, <laughs> it's there's a knowing of that feeling. That feeling is certainly there. But to say, it's my feeling, or I experience it, that when you look for what that I is, that me is, then that, there's no thing there that can really be found. It has a, a shape, or a form, or a, a location. And so, that if, if there is, in that moment, a sense of, oh, look at that, it's just, it's just feeling, it's known here, there's a knowing of it, but that knowing isn't a person, doesn't belong to a person. Oh! And that, oh, is kind of the point of the whole thing, that change of view. Because in that, 
in that instance, then there's a, a way that, that that experience is held differently. And we would say this is the, the insight that is the, the, so the, the core of insight meditation, vipassana, is that change of vision, change of heart. So the process of insight meditation, the, the method, is say the focusing on, uh, on the present moment and using these uh, reflections on anicca, dukkha, anatta, change and unsatisfactoriness, not self. That's the method of insight meditation. But that's not the insight itself. That's just like the that's the vehicle. <laughs> the the point of getting in the vehicle is to to go someplace. Like the the point of going up on the paraglider. The the, the to, is you know, uh, the the kit is there. You've got the the the, the tool, the machinery, you know, the device. But the point is to get somewhere. So the point of the machinery or the methodology of insight practice is not just the the the, the method. But the, the the change of heart that the method brings when it's applied in a skillful way. So that's the the essence of of uh, insight practice. Maybe one other thing I should mention is uh, very 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 popular in in India and all around the world. Um, the uh, vipassana meditation, uh, there's uh, vipassana meditation centers, insight practice, um, as established by uh, Mr. Goenka Goenkaji. Um, He's uh, helped you know, many hundreds of thousands of people, probably millions of people around the world. Um, but the, uh, I'm not trying to be critical of Mr. Goenka, but the, the way that the word vipassana is used in that tradition and in those practices is quite a, a narrow and specific usage of the word. And the vipassana meditation isn't just... It, was, it wasn't invented by, by Goenkaji. <laughs> It uh, has a much broader meaning. It literally just means see, seeing inwardly. And so um, it doesn't just revolve around paying attention to sensations of the body. As uh, I've been saying, you can develop insight uh, around a thought that arises in the mind, uh, a sound that we hear, the, a smell, a taste, a, a memory, an idea, an emotion, uh, yeah, a mind state the movements of the body. Uh, so sensation, Vedana, is not an essential element of, of Vipassana practice. It's just one of, all, it's one of the five khandhas. It's one of those five groups of experience. Um, and so even though I, I've never done a Goenka retreat, uh, I <laughs> was, uh, wasn't, uh, so I don't have direct experience, but I've met dozens, probably hundreds and hundreds of people who have done the re- retreats. And so... Just wanting to clarify that when we use the word vipassana, we're using it in the more classical, very broad use of the term, rather than in Goenkaji's specific uh, use of the term according to his own particular methodology of uh, of meditation. Uh, just so to make that uh, make that clear, and uh, uh, the 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 use of the, this practice also it's um, it's something that. It's, um, uh, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't have value just if there's some kind of uh, very sort of powerful, strong, uh, ex- extensive meditation experience. I would say just even those moments of, uh, of clarity where a sense of self drops away, where there, there's that, a moment of clear seeing. Um, as Ajahn Chah would say, you know, when, uh, if you're in a dark room, you only need the light to come on for a few seconds to to see where you are in the room, where the door is, and 
and uh, where things are. And then the, the light can go off again, but you know where you are and you know how the room is, is set up. Even if the light goes off and you're still in the dark, you, you, know, you know where things are. And so that, that, that even a moment, a, sh- a brief moment of, of clarity, of insight, is valuable. So even if, I would say, during the whole 40-minute sitting, there's like one and a half seconds of, oh, right, <laughs> it's just feeling arising and passing away, that's all. Then I would say that's a, 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 a valuable and, uh, and uh, I say, a liberating insight, even if it was only a second or half a second long, that you know, the light came on and there was clarity for that short time. It does make a difference. And uh, we can, also we can know that for, our, for, our, for ourselves in our own experience. Another important aspect that, um, of the, the, uh, the practice, and uh, probably very apparent, we've, only, we've been together for not quite a day. It's now 10 to 2 in the afternoon. We gathered together at 2.30 yesterday. It might feel like, just one day? What? <laughs> Must be longer than that. <laughs> but not quite a day yet. But uh, um, particularly for, for those who are very new to meditation, we might think that meditation is about the mind, but it's very obvious very quickly how much the body is involved and the feelings of the body um, and how just sitting still can, can bring a lot of aches and pains. So in the process of meditation and training the mind and developing uh, wisdom, understanding, then uh, dealing with physical pain and working with physical pain is, is an important part of that. We're not doing this in order to feel pain. <laughs> to, uh, it's not something that's intrinsically valuable or useful, but it comes with the package of being born. We're, we have bodies that are sensitive, and if we, we sit still for long periods of time, then aches and pains naturally arise. So one of the most helpful teachings in this regard... Um, and it kind of relates to what I was saying uh, this morning about uh, uh, the the Buddha and his uh, his feelings after Sariputra Moggallana had passed away, that uh, he was uh, experiencing that sense of of sadness or, or the emptiness of the whole assembly because of the his, these two companions had uh, had passed away. That um, we can, re- and I mentioned then that not just emotional pain but physical pain. Uh, a lot depends on the attitude that we have towards it. So there's a very valuable teaching called the Arrow. Uh, it's in the uh, the connected discourses uh, about the uh, uh, on the six senses. So it's the Salla Sutta. Salla is the Pali word for an arrow. And the the Buddha was a soldier before he was a, a spiritual uh, practitioner and teacher. And so there's quite a lot of of uh, military analogies and imagery that he uses in his teaching. Um, and this is one instance of that. So he uses the image of a, of a soldier being shot on a battlefield with an arrow. And uh, he says the, the, uh, the first arrow, if you imagine a soldier being, being shot on a battlefield, the first arrow of physical pain, uh, nobody can avoid that. If you're alive, if you have a mind, you have a body, there's going to be pain. That's, that's part of the package. <laughs> that's, whether you're uh, enlightened or unenlightened, old, young, tall or short, whatever uh, country we are, there's going to be physical pain. That's how our physical system is established. So the, no one can avoid the first arrow. And, and the Buddha himself, again, as I mentioned 
this morning, he had chronic back pain. Uh, the, the, the discourse that describes the, the Buddha's last days, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, it begins with him at the early part of the Sutta saying, uh, he makes the comment, uh, I, am, uh, uh, I am old, Ananda. You know, the, uh, the body is past 80 years. Uh, my body is like an old cart held together with strings and straps. Um, the only way I can experience comfort is to completely absorb the mind into emptiness. So uh, if the Buddha was, you know, what he's saying is that if he was paying attention to the ordinary field of experience, he was in pain. And there's numerous places uh, in the suttas where uh, the Buddha's giving a Dhamma talk and uh, he'll, he'll say um, to, to Ananda or Sariputta or uh, Venerable uh, Kachana or Moggallana, say, yeah, Kachana, the, the, the assembly is wide awake, my back is paining me, I'm going to go and lie down and stretch my back. Uh, and so you know, the assembly is still awake, you carry on giving a Dhamma talk. So many places he'll say that. So he's not only experiencing pain, but he's ready to do something about it. <laughs> uh, so he's a fully enlightened being, he's not creating um, a, a problem around that pain, but he's certainly feeling it, and also doing things to uh, ameliorate it, recognizing that uh, if, he's, if he sits... Uh, carry on giving the Dhamma talk, you know, the, the, the pain in his back is going to uh, carry on and increase and that it's, it's going to be better for his body to lie down and stretch it and uh, to uh, take the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the weight off his back. So uh, the second arrow, he says uh, in this, this analogy of this soldier on the battlefield, the second arrow is everything that the mind adds to that uh, that painful feeling. So uh, negotiating, resenting, waiting for it to be over, complaining, why me, it's not fair, I've done my exercises, I'm a yogi, I shouldn't be feeling this. You know, I've, uh, yeah, I've, uh, uh, I, I've prepared my body properly, but why, why is this pain happening? So all of that is uh, the second arrow, and that is completely avoidable. And that's uh, the... Um, uh, in a way, a very frequent uh, opportunity within the particularly sitting meditation. Uh, we'll do some walking meditation in a, in a while, but the, particularly in sitting meditation, that uh, we uh, we're all going to experience the first arrow of, uh, of painful feeling. You're not not because we we're asking for it, but just because that's the nature of the physical body. But uh, the, the second arrow of waiting for the painful feeling to be over, resenting it, fearing it, negotiating with it, tensing up against it, all of that is the second arrow. And the Buddha in his teaching points out that second arrow is completely avoidable. And so in the, in the, the teaching, the core teaching about, about suffering, what's, what's called the Four Noble Truths, where, uh, where he talks about suffering and the ending of suffering, uh, and the, you know, the the path, the eightfold path that leads to the ending of suffering, that the dukkha of that, that is ended uh, uh, with the uh, the completion of that of the path is all the second arrow. It's not the first. So if if uh, if you have come here hoping to never experience pain ever again, you kind of signed up for the wrong event. <laughs> it's not that's not an offer. But, uh, uh, but the dukkha that can end completely and utterly is all the second arrow. So 
uh, and a succinct version uh, of this is just to, uh, and you'd see this sometimes on, on at least when I lived on the west coast in America, you'd see sometimes on the bumper stickers, um, uh, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. It's a simple way of, of expressing it. Philosophical bumper stickers in California. So, <laughs> pain is inevitable, suffering is optional, and that's it kind of yeah a good bumper sticker to have. <laughs> Put it on your T-shirt, you know. But uh, uh, because if we're looking for a life that doesn't have any pain in it, it's going to be a long search and uh, and not uh, and not not satisfying that we won't get to that place. And no matter how hard we try or what kind of pharmaceuticals we might use or whatever any guru might promise, there's always going to be uh, physical pain as long as we're alive. But the possibility that's there in the, in the Buddha's teaching and these practices is that we can live f- completely free of being hit by that second arrow, that there, there doesn't have to be any suffering around those uh, painful experiences. So in the, in the sutta, the, the, the sutta of the arrow, it only refers to physical pain but I feel that, and very, very, very importantly, <laughs> I would say it applies to emotional pain in exactly the same way. Whether we're feeling sadness, like someone close to us has died, or that um, there's some uh, sorrowful, uh, challenging I- event has, has happened around us, um, we can be fully aware of, uh, of, of that experience. There can still be those feelings of, of uh, emotional pain, uh, you know, regret or sadness, or grief, and so on. But the mind uh, is attuned to that, knows that, doesn't it, so suppress it or reject it, but is not creating suffering around that, not creating resentment or tension or, or agitation around that. It's just this is what grief feels like, this is what regret feels like, this is what that feeling of loss is like, and that there's a peacefulness even though it has a, a painful quality there. So I feel that's a, a very. Uh, significant area of uh, of our lives because also we tend to take um, pain very personally like when <laughs> our legs or our back are, are aching it's like ow it's, you know, that hurts me <laughs> ow it's, uh, we, we take it very personally very easily it's very very close to home so that the more that we can um, change this uh, uh, the view the more that we can use the, the, the practice of meditation to not let that second arrow land then there can still be that the discomfort or the, the sound that we don't like or, or whatever it might be that those painful qualities can be there but it's absolutely not a problem and we're not we're not numb to it we're not um, uh, say um, refusing to take any action but we're not creating a problem out of it, just like the Buddha being ready to, to finish his Dhamma talk and hand it over to Venerable Ananda or Sariputta or Kachana, Mahakachana. Um, that he was ready to go and, and do something about his, his back pain, but um, there wasn't that kind of agitation or resentment or, or anxiety around it. Oh, one of the um, other areas where teachings on these principles can be found and, and Later on, I will uh, encourage us to chant that together. Is the uh, what's called the discourse on not self, the Anattalakana Sutta, and so this is taken to be the, the second of the Buddha's discourses, the discourse on not self. And so, after the Buddha's enlightenment, 
and then he made his way from Budgaya to um, to Varanasi to the deer park. Um, you can still visit at Saranath. Uh, outside of uh, Varanasi, they have the large Damek stupa, and it's uh, preserved as a, a holy place to to visit. And that's where the Buddha met up with his um, his five former companions uh, when he had had this insight uh, as a as a yogi that. Um, he was with a group of five other companions, and they were living on very, very little food, just a few rice grains each day, and were, uh, practicing very severe uh, austerities, ascetic practices. The Buddha, uh, as he, uh, he was a bodhisattva at that point. Uh, the bodhisattva realized, you know, we're, we're working on the belief that uh, more pain is better, and the more pain you can endure, then the more spiritual qualities you're developing. But what I'm experiencing, this is the most pain you can experience. This is the limit to which painful feeling goes. You can't experience more pain than this. But this really isn't valuable. <laughs> this doesn't have any benefit in and of itself. As his intuitive wisdom sort of rose to the surface and said, well, we're doing this and we have this belief that really this is, it's, it's just painful there, and there's no intrinsic benefit or value in this. Oh, so um, this is the wrong track. I've been going, we've been going very diligently and, and with great faith and commitment down the wrong road. Um, and so then the thought arose in his mind, perhaps there's some other way to enlightenment. And he had a spontaneous memory of him as a child, when his father, King Sudodhana, was engaged in some, some ceremony, he as a little boy was sort of sitting off to one side under the shade of a tree. And, uh, and he wasn't very interested in the ceremony that dad, his dad was doing. And uh, just sitting under the tree, and his mind became very concentrated and very peaceful. And then he, he remembered that, that moment. He thought, so at that time, my mind was was concentrated, it was bright, uh, it was com everything was completely wholesome, uh, it, it wasn't painful at all, it was, it was really quite pleasant. <laughs> uh, so the, the endurance of pain wasn't part of it, what mattered was the mind was, was focused and, uh, and attentive to the present. And that was completely innocent, completely wholesome in and of itself. Perhaps that's the way to enlightenment to establish that kind of simple clarity and focused attention and not be confusing the issue by trying to experience more and more pain. And then this intuition rose up, yes, that's the way to enlightenment. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's the way to do it. That's the way to, to go. And so uh, he decided to follow that intuition uh, and to go against all the customs and traditions and the, the way of practice of, uh, that he and his companions had had. So, uh, uh, as the story goes, uh, a, a local woman, uh, Sujata, happened to see him sitting under the, the tree and looking extremely uh, skinny and haggard and came along with a, a, a bowl of, uh, of, of rice, milk rice. And rather than him saying, you know, I mean, I'm an ascetic, you know, yeah, I couldn't eat that much in a month, you know. But he said, he kind of accepted the offering and started to eat ordinary food. So his, his friends, the five companions, thought, you know, has really lost it. He's kind of eating a whole bowl of rice pudding. This is outrageous, indulgent. You know, how can he do that? What kind of a yogi is he? He's kind of given up on the whole path. So 
um, they thought he was a, a, a failure as a yogi and had sort of broken their uh, with their standards of, of practice. But uh, the the, uh, the bodhisattva he had this intuition. No, this is this is the right way to go. I can't possibly establish uh, clarity and calm. Uh, in a consistent way with my body so emaciated he was he was passing out he was like blacking out and fainting because he was so uh, so emaciated so uh, so so skinny and so void of energy as he said he could he could touch the the skin of his stomach and feel his backbone from the inside <laughs> so he was really skinny so uh, he went off by himself and uh, and accepted more more food and, and built his body up and then uh, had arrived at Bodhgaya and then uh, had realized full and complete enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, the Sri Mahabodhi tree, where we just came from uh, yesterday. <laughs> we, uh, we came from there. Yeah, uh, and then uh, after sitting under the Bodhi tree in, in that area for a little while, then he thought, well, now I have this understanding and uh, this, uh, this state of, uh, this quality of liberation is fully manifest and is unshakable. And then, um, uh, cut a long story short, he was encouraged to, to share his understanding and he made his way from, from Bodhgaya um, to Varanasi to reconnect with his five companions. So when they, they first saw him, they thought, oh, this is our, our, our old friend Gotama. He kind of failed at the practice. He bailed out and became a, 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 an eater. <laughs> you know, he ate milk rice and they kind of gave up on the, on the yogic path. And they, they saw him and they thought, well, we should ignore him or reject him. We shouldn't, we shouldn't um, uh, say, give him any kind of, of a warm welcome. But they couldn't stop themselves. They, found, they kind of jumped up and greeted him and... Even though their their minds were thinking, oh, you know, he's our old this uh, old friend who, who gave up on the path and failed, they they found themselves uh, uh, leaping up to to help him and, and to provide for him. So uh, uh, he he then uh, offered to share with them his understanding. They said, well, how can you have any understanding? How can you be enlightened? You know, you gave up on the spiritual path. You're you're you know you you blew it. You started eating food and you. He gave up on the practice, <laughs> and uh, he said, that, "Friends, the, the deathless has been realized. If you listen to me, if you pay attention in no long time, then you too will arrive at this same understanding." And they said, "Well, how can that be? You know, you you're, you you gave up on the path and back and forth three times." And then the Buddha finally says, "Have I ever spoken to you in this way before?" And they said, "No, you haven't." Listen, friends. <laughs> The enlightenment has been realized if you pay attention. In no, no long time, you too will be able to arrive at this same understanding. So the first teaching he gave them was about the middle way and the four noble truths. And the four noble truths are cast in the form of a, a medical diagnosis. Dukkha, uh, dis, uh, unsatisfactoriness, that's the symptom. That's the, the, the spiritual Disease is uh, is dukkha, dissatisfaction, and then the uh, the cause of the disease, the cause of, of the illness, is defined as craving, tanha, three uh, three kinds: craving for sense pleasure, the the craving to become, and the cra- the craving to get rid of, uh, karma tanha, bhava tanha, vipava tanha, which I'll get into in due course. <laughs> uh, then the 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 third noble truth 
is the prognosis. Is this disease curable? Dukkha niroda. Yes, it's curable. Uh, uh, and uh, then the fourth one is the treatment. Is uh, What is the way that that cure can be effected is the noble eightfold path. That, um, and that... And that was the, the teaching he shared with his uh, with his friends, and that uh, uh, and I was referring to earlier that the the ending of suffering, the, the dukkha niroda, the ending of suffering that that refers to, is all the second arrow. It doesn't promise an ending of physical pain or or inconvenience, or that all your debts will be paid off, <laughs> or that everyone will like you. But it it does mean that you'll uh, learn how not to make a problem out of uh, anything. So that's what he shared with his, his companions, first of all. And of those five, only one of them had, uh, had the genuine understanding of what he was talking about, Kandanya. And he had the uh, initial uh, 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 awakening level. He reached the initial level of awakening of stream entry. He understood uh, what, what the Buddha meant and then realized stream entry sit, as he was sitting there listening to the Buddha in the deer park outside of Varanasi. And so then the, the second sutta, uh, the Anatalakana sutta, is following on from that first discourse. The, uh, the, uh, the first discourse is called the turning of the wheel of Dhamma, setting in motion the wheel of Dhamma. Uh, the second discourse is called the, in, uh, the discourse on the characteristic of not-self. And so this is where these essential teachings and where, where the practice of inside meditation is, is based really around the principles that are expressed in the discourse on not-self. And in that discourse, the Buddha starts off with this kind of analysis. He uses this analytical approach to experience. And he says, so... The, the body, rupa, is it, uh, is it permanent or is it impermanent? Is it in a state of change or is it not? So it's in a state of change. Okay. Uh, that which is in a state of change, is that uh, something that can be permanently satisfying or, or, or not? Uh, is it subject to affliction or not subject to affliction? So it's, you know, necessarily it's subject to affliction. If it's, if it's in a state of change, it can't be permanently satisfying. That's a obvious conclusion. So, if it's in a state of change and it can't be permanently satisfying, is it appropriate to say of it, this is mine, this is what I am, this is my true self? They say, no, hey, tang bante. No, it's not. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I'll, we'll explore, have time to explore this in more detail as we go along. But um, that, um, both the, the, the first teaching or the turning of the wheel and this second teaching, um, the, the background to them is the, the basic Indian philosophical landscape of there is an ultimate reality, uh, that there is a fundamental, there's an ultimate reality which transcends our normal uh, sensory experiential world. Um, and so the, the first teaching, the Dhammachaka Sutta, is like, uh, when he's talking about suffering and um, the, uh, the ending of suffering, uh, the background to that is uh, essentially the question, if there is an ultimate reality, why are we not, and that's the fundamental nature of what we are and what all things are, why are we not happy all of the time? That's the question. <laughs> why is there 
if, that, if there is an ultimate reality, if that's taken to be the fundamental truth of things, why are we not happy? Why are we not free? Why, uh, why, are we not, why do we experience dissatisfaction? And so he, uh, he starts off with that uh, experience of, of dukkha. So well, isn't, this, isn't this strange? Why is it that we don't experience or, or know that, that, that fundamental reality? And then uh, he spells it out as because of, of craving, sense uh, the different kinds of craving that create obstacles to that. When that craving has been let go of, then that, uh, the, the realization of that fundamental reality is actualized and their liberation is, comes w- with that. So that only uh, having explained it in that way, only one of the disciples, only one of his friends understood to the so an initial degree. So the second sutta, Anathalakana Sutta, is kind of spelling it out in more detail. Okay, they didn't get the whole thing that time. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's open this up a bit more. Let's kind of examine this a bit more closely. Let's look a bit more deeply into how this works where these qualities of attachment and craving get located. So that the, the Anatalakana Sutta, the discourse on oneself, is sort of, in a way, digging more deeply into that process of why is it that, <laughs> that the mind gets lost in, uh, in the things it desires, the, the different kinds of, of craving. And so he goes through in the, the discourse on oneself, um, that the background to that is uh, so uh, if there is an utter, if there is a true self if that's if we if there was a a um, a fundamental reality that's a true uh, a true atman then that uh, that atman would have the qualities of being consciousness and bliss such chit ananda so that if there is a true self if there's a, a true independent absolute i uh, then that I should be experiencing uh, bliss and, and the substantial being, um, and uh, you know, it would be uh, something that was that was stable, that was reliable, it was permanent. And so, again, that's the, the the background to the this second discourse is that if there was a self, Atman, the nature of the Atman, I'm, I'm sure there's a few. Vedic philosophers here <laughs> know this material far better than I do, but the the qualities of the Atman uh, should be sat chit ananda, being consciousness, bliss. And so when he says so, uh, the body rupa, is it um, is it in a state of change? Is it satisfactory? Uh, and they say uh, no, it's uh, it's it, it, it is it is changing. It's not unchanging. Uh, it's unsatisfactory. So, if it's both in a state of change, they can't be totally stable. Uh, if it's if it's unsatisfactory, then it, it can't be blissful. So, if it's if it's unstable and it's subject to affliction, can this be the atta? Is it appropriate to say this is mine? Etang mama, esom hamasmi. This is what I am. Esome atta. This is my true self. This is whom what I am. No, he tangbante. No, it isn't. <laughs> so it's a very analytical method. It's a sort of exploring and, and using a kind of logical um, uh, investigation. And uh, again, use another long Pali word. This is called vibhajyavada, or the way of analysis. And so the Buddha was a, was an analyst, <laughs> and it, it's called the way of analysis, exploring the fabric of experience. How 
experience works, how it's put together to create this everyday impression of, of who and what we are and the world that we live in. Then uh, he goes through each of the other, uh, of the five khandhas. Uh, so with, with respect to Vedana, sensation, feeling, uh, is it in a state of change? Yes. Uh, is it subject to affliction or not subject to affliction? Yes, it's subject to affliction. So is it, worth, is it appropriate to say of Vedana, this is, my, this is mine, this is what I am, this is myself? No, it's not. So each of the the, um, the the five khandas, he kind of walks them through, and then uh, the uh, encouragement then is uh, to then, if that's the case, then um, uh, isn't it appropriate then to not look upon the the body or, or material form, feeling, perceptions, mental formations, uh, and consciousness as who uh, and what you are, but rather to let go of the habits of attachment and identification with this body, with these feelings, with these perceptions, with these mental formations, ideas, emotions, uh, attitudes, and uh, and then uh, to uh, be aware of the, the result of having let go of that identification to see that what comes with that is liberation, uh, comes enlightenment. And as he gave this discourse to these five companions, all of them realized full and complete enlightenment there in the, the deer park in uh, Varanasi. So this, uh, this teaching, uh, the Anathalakana Sutta, which again it sort of forms the core of insight meditation practice, uh, uh, that was the, the, the cause or the catalyst those uh, the first uh, people to realize uh, enlightenment on the basis of the Buddha's teachings. So it's extremely significant. And also, it's, I would say, even though that teaching took place about 2,600 years ago, it's still absolutely relevant today. That's why we're gathered together at the at Deer Park. And to, to see how when we, uh, in the same way, analyze the experience of each moment... Um, when there's a feeling or uh, we hear a, a sound or a, we see a visual form, we have an idea or there's an emotion, yeah. is it changing? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, is it satisfactory? No, it's, uh, no, it's not. Uh, if it's changing and it's unsatisfactory, uh, is it appropriate to say, this is, this is mine, this is what I am, this is myself? No, it's not. Therefore, uh, the le- letting go, the non-identification then is is uh, catalyzed through that, that clear seeing. And so that uh, even though this is a very ancient teaching, the, uh, these words are extremely relevant to our, our own life, our own, our own uh, practice, and our, the, the potential that, that we all have.